What matters most, processes or people? Can an upside-down pyramid change healthcare? And what's the connection to the 2008 Olympics? Welcome to the Transformative Healthcare Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Chobatar. I serve as publisher and editor-in-chief of Advent Health Press. We're trying something a bit different with this podcast series. Often, we create podcasts after a book is released, but this time we're going to share the book's concepts as a work in progress before they're published. Our authors are Dr. Jeffrey Kuhlman, Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Safety Officer for Advent Health Orlando, and Daniel Peach, Director of Clinical Transformation at Advent Health Orlando. Today's episode is entitled, Turning the Current Model on Its Head, People, Processes, and Tech. Now let's join Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach as they discuss Upside Down Pyramids and the Olympics. I spent uh, over 16 years supporting the President, supporting the White House, uh, providing the medical support from them, not just at the White House, but anywhere travels in the world. So usually when people find that out, they ask me the same question. Uh, what was the best uh, part of the job? And so my answer is the travel. <laughs> and then they would say, what's the worst part of the job? And my answer would be the travel. <laughs> um, so during those years, I had the, uh, the fortune to go to about 90 countries. And 90 countries, you get to evaluate the uh, healthcare infrastructure that they have and transportation and getting to and from uh, the definitive care or the lack of uh, um, healthcare in some austere environments and the planning that goes into providing the support that all of us would expect for um, the president and uh, their traveling uh, staff. Um, many places kind of stick out in my mind and one of them was uh, Beijing. So mm -hmm. Beijing I went to in June of 98. Uh, president Clinton had uh, made a swing through China and Beijing to me was fascinating at the time with the millions of bicycles and uh, still had around the Forbidden City uh, looked like we could have been from a, a few centuries before. Right. Um, and it was just a fascinating food and fascinating culture and uh, the people that were there and the interactions. Went back a couple times um, in the next decade and then in the Beijing Olympics were in 2008. Right, yeah. So I was part of the pre-advanced team. The pre-advanced team goes out a couple months before and makes sure that, you know, what's the, where are the venues, what's the plan, what are the different barriers that you're going to have. So with that, the White House Medical Unit, the pre-advanced uh, person, we walk through the hospitals. So with the hospitals, what we try to do is um, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Uh, so take me through uh, a trauma patient that is coming through your system. Right. Um, so whether it's ambulance or whether it's helicopter, usually there's a receiving um, zone. So you look at the, uh, the decontamination procedures, the trauma stabilization, and there was reluctance from the local hospital because um, all they wanted to show me was this new VIP wing that looked like a Ritz-Carlton that was kind of on the <laughs> roof for comfort and care, not where I wanted to look at um, 
um, kind of the most gritty parts of the hospital. Yeah. Where the so, action took place. Yeah. yeah. And the embassy doctor wasn't helpful because that's all he wanted to, to show us too, just, you know, do what they say. And, you know, I'd been around the block. So I kind of just stopped and I told them, look, this is the bottom line. If an individual gets shot or they get stabbed, I'm going to keep the blood in the body and get them to definitive care. Yeah. And then your team, your trauma team needs to be here and needs to, to do their job. And that was completely foreign to them because they had a plan that their trauma team would be at home. And if they were summoned, then they would come and come out, yeah. come and, and do that. So there's a fine line in, in diplomacy, um, just saying, well, this is the reasonable approach. And they actually said, it will not happen here. There won't be a gunshot wound. There won't be a knife stabbing. And I said, hey, that's great. Prevention is always the best option, but we, we plan for the worst. Yeah. And if you take care of penetrating trauma, you can also take care of blunt trauma. Yep. So reluctantly, they placated me and they said, we will have trauma team A in place and we will swap out in 24 hours with tra trauma team B because then they knew they had to cover it for maybe not the whole Olympics, but they had to cover it during uh, the, the portion of the, the presidential visit. Right. And you had uh, dozens and dozens, probably 100 different world leaders there uh, during the... Uh, during that same period. Yeah, during the yeah. week or two of the opening and the closing <clears throat> ceremonies are kind of the big ones. So we were there for the opening ceremonies. And what we've also learned is you don't pick the prettiest hospital. You want to pick the one that sees uh, sees the most uh, trauma. So in the U.S., it's the designated trauma center. Yeah. Um, so sometimes that causes grief with the local law enforcement. Well, I want to use this hospital because they have better coffee or that's where grandma was taken care of as opposed to you know, this is the knife and gun club, which yep. um, the reason that's where you have the best outcomes is the ones that are prepared for it every day. So what we've learned is planning is everything. So we, it was great. We had the reassurance that it will not happen here. Um, it also was at a, a location, not next to the, um, not next to some of the Olympic venues, the bird's nest or the ice cube yeah. um, or the Olympic village. Uh, but it was actually uh, closer down towards Tiananmen Square. So fast forward a couple months, uh, beginning of August, and we uh, we come in with um, uh, Air Force One, uh, the backup or the support plane, uh, the media plane, and you kind of have a descent. Uh, the entourage. The entourage yeah. that, that arrives. So what happened the morning after the opening ceremony is there was uh, one of the Olympic coaches uh, his father-in-law and mother-in-law and his wife were as tourists, and they were in the bell tower, which is just to the north of, uh, of Tiananmen Square. Right. And they were seeing the sights of the city, um, of the, uh, the spectacular ancient civilization, and uh, there was a, a crazy individual who wielded a knife and actually um, fatally stabbed the father-in-law and then stabbed the uh, the mother-in-law uh, in the abdomen uh, several times, and then um, in in plain sight of the uh, the family and the other uh, tourists that were there. We later found out that he um, he jumped off the uh, the tower and met his death. So we we're not sure of the motivation, and you're kind of never sure if uh, he was pushed or he jumped. Right. Um, but that's a uh, 
uh, that was part of the um, the tragedy. So the the point of the story is uh, the local emergency medical team took the patient, kept the blood in the body, followed the plan that had now been go to the uh, trauma center. Right. Um, so go to the hospital. Uh, they went into Peking Union Hospital. They were there in the emergency department. The team was there, so they were able to uh, do the definitive care on the the multiple abdominal wounds, and provide the uh, the support that that uh, she she needed. The planning is what saved her. It's not the, you know, it's not necessarily the heroic action, even though the heroic actions were all, you know, by them just doing their job. Yeah. Um, based on the planning, uh, she went on to stabilize, recover, and was later medevac back to her her home state, and I did well. Instead of just taking their word, instead of being satisfied with the status quo, we knew that we needed to follow follow the right procedures. And 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 not be afraid to to look at trying to get a, a change at that point and to have others be involved in that to help support. And even though it was it was to support the president's staff and president, the consequence of that is, is ongoing yeah. because it was... So sometimes in healthcare, we have to take the long-held sacred cows or the long-held protocols and put them aside. We have to take technology, data, and not put it on every single problem. Right. We don't need to necessarily blindly follow somebody else's protocol. And because if we had done that for Beijing, it w- we wouldn't have had a good result. So you have to kind of how would you want to be treated as a patient? What's the best way to take care of, of patients? And it becomes, a, and everyone agrees, the healthcare teams agree. It would be better if we were in the hospital. It would be better if we're there with the trauma team ready to take care. And, okay, what are the barriers that you can't do that today? Well, it's bureaucratic. Is yeah. That would, um, then we would appear that we were expecting that. Yes. And, and so then you kind of, you lose face. So, in healthcare, you just have to be able to identify the barriers, remove the barriers, and do what's best for the patient. I I often think of, you know, we live in the age of technology, and I think there's two sides to technology. Yeah, I mean, you've you've got, there's always the positive from technology, being able to um, to, to join things up, to to get people to communicate, to transmit information that you wouldn't necessarily be able to carry yourself all the time. But we tend to we tend to build around it and we tend to to really restrict ourselves with it. It becomes the focus, the be all and end all of everywhere that we are. What about texting? Yeah, I mean with if you look at texting, it's interesting how it's developed because now we can I can sit and communicate with family over in the UK instantaneously from texting. That sounds like a good thing. That's a good thing, okay. unless it's a dinner and yeah. you're trying to do it when yeah. you should be communicating. Yeah. And and that's the other part of it. It be we it becomes self-encompassing. We believe then that we've got to communicate using technology instead of facing out the person that's in front of us, um, of being able to link people together. We'll often you you'll see your teenagers. My teenagers will sit next to each other with their friends. They'll text each other. And they lose that ability to make that true communication, to read the body language, to get the real in-depth information as to what's going on. And technology being good that you can communicate, you can connect with people, but it also can create a chasm that's in there. 
and it starts to block those relationships that are there. So if you're a a patient that's sat in a room terrified of what the verdict's going to be from testing that's gone on for cancer and you're on your own, you're in a sterile room sat on a a piece of paper on a bench with uh, wearing a, a gown that never has the back in it and then a doctor walks in or a nurse walks in head down huddled over their tablet or their computer and then gives you the verdict of what it is i'm sorry to tell you but so it sounds like technology is good when it brings people together yeah when it enhances relationships absolutely so i think that takes us back to the the patient in the exam room yeah so if you think of your classic 15 minute doctor's appointment yeah instead of spending 10 minutes recording the data and maybe five minutes interacting with the patient imagine if you spent all 15 minutes talking and listening to the patient well it'd be stunning then wouldn't it because you're yeah. what you're actually doing is you've you've then gone from the tendency now that we go from building technology putting a process in place and then connecting the people and you're flipping it over we're then looking at the person as the center of it and that the processes and the technology help support the people, not the people supporting the technology. Yeah, I think we're going to find cutting technology that enhances personal interaction will be, that'll be useful and that'll find a place. I mean, it, it, it's easier for us to, and, and we see it every day that new phones will come out, new TVs, new video recorders. And it's easy for us to read a manual and to go through it and to work out how to use that new technology with all the new gizmos and gadgets that come in there. But when the harder job is being able to learn a new person, being able to communicate with them and get the real depth of what the issues are and being able to, to draw those out. We, if you look at what we did with, with the help of, of all of the providers and all of the nursing staff and everyone, we've really driven to, to, to formulate um, algorithms and, and to, to deal with different problems, so the cabbage and sepsis and chest pain, and, and to get those to work with people. Using the technology and building the pathways has never really illustrated, well, we need to use more technology to actually resolve the issues that these patients have. None of the algorithms that are put together, the pathways are built around technology. They're built around what you do as, as a, a physician, as a nurse, how you identify it. And they're not built around business models either. They're not being driven from, we must get these patients to achieve X, Y, Z within these particular metrics. They're built around people. They're built about doing the right thing. If I think of the classic pyramid of people, processes, and technology, yeah. often at the top of the pyramid, people put technology. Yeah. And that's the flashy, shiny stuff. Yeah. And then the middle is processes, and then kind of people and relationships are at the, at the bottom. And this is kind of considered modern healthcare. So it's costly in terms of money, in, in, in terms of uh, lives. What really matters is diagnosis. So if you gather data in a distant information system, that's not the best way to treat the patient in front of you. The first day in medical school, we learned three things. Listen to your patient, yep. and they'll tell you what's wrong with them. Don't be over enamored by technology, and every patient give them something for their time of need. Now, sometimes that'll be 
um, a medication. Other times it'll be a procedure. Other times it'll be um, a hand to hold, a shoulder to, to comfort. A patient's history tells you 80% of what you need to know. Mm -hmm. So asking those questions, getting that history of that present illness, 80% of the information is right there. The physical exam, the physical evidence, maybe 10 or 15%. And then the diagnostics, the lab, the imaging, the fancy technology, that adds maybe 5%. So I think of the patient that is in the office, maybe that's sitting on the exam table or sitting in the chair, and they're grimacing and they're positioned a little bit sideways. And the experienced physician walks in, asks a couple questions, looks at the patient, and set, listens to the patient and says, oh, you have a thrombosed hemorrhoid. Right. Instead, somebody might get sidetracked with the data, jump to technology of a scan of some type, and completely miss listening to the patient or actually looking at, at them in relating to their, to their experience. So we have, to, we have to turn the pyramid upside down. And, it, and it's looking at the practical applications. And, and you're right, it's similar to the, the story you started with, that you're, you, can, you can get locked into what you need to show, what you need to accomplish, and how that best looks, rather than looking at what are the practicalities, how do we get into the, the down and dirty aspects of it, and, and how do we, we really achieve that we're looking to do, which is that patient care. And being enamored with technology drives us more towards technology. And it, it, it's like taking AI and applying AI to everything that we do in medicine. Now, there are benefits. There are huge benefits in there to be able to help to identify and maybe to treat in the long run and, and that early identification of patients. But it's not the be-all and end-all. It's a tool. It's like a plumber having a, um, a, a ratchet to be able to work with, a spanner to, to, to be able to help manipulate what's going on. And if you don't have the right tools, you can't accomplish the tasks. But they're tools. And you've got to have the person on the end of those that can actually start to work with them and has the skill sets to identify it. And, and what we try to do is bring those together, is to make sure that you, you, you get the right balance. You get the right balance of that human interaction that's there, the right balance of the processes that help place that, and then finalize that with making the technology fit the requirements of everyone else rather than the other way around. Yeah, that sounds like turning the pyramid upside down. Yeah. So build the technology and the processes to support the people, not to supersede them. People will change the culture. Yes. Technology can't. I think it's, it's, it's a daunting challenge. It's always easier to embrace technology. It's easier to adjust processes than to change people. But I think that's why it's called transformation, and that's why it takes transformation. We've created formulas, algorithms for different health problems. They work. Yet they're never shown on TV no, or adverts. No, there are people are you know what's what's shown is actually the newest CAT scan machine, helicopters, yeah. pretty buildings. Um, none of our algorithms actually start with technology, and they're also not business models. They place the heaviest value on the input from people, and people can adjust the algorithms. They say this is this is the way that I would best take care of a patient. And here's the barriers of why I don't do that today. So I think the personal approach bridges the gap between 
generational physicians. We still yes. have, we have a few of the greatest generation physicians still practicing, and there's, they have a wealth of, uh, of experience and expertise. Um, baby boomers are are the biggest chunk of physicians that are actually practicing, followed closely by Generation X, by, um, and then the millennials are kind of still in training. Yeah. But we actually find that nursing, the bedside nursing, the ICU nursing, the highest percentage generationally are millennials. Yeah. So, and then you have um, the next generation right behind them. So there's actually the personal approach is what bridges the gap between different generations of physicians, between physicians and administrators, between physicians and, and patients. And I think we see that because people connect much better than processes. And I, and I think as well is that we, we said earlier about the, the language differences that we see, that we, we, we find that administrators say one thing, physicians say one thing, and we think we're actually talking of the same language, and we're not. The meanings are different. And it's similar with technology. We tend to wield technology in different ways. So the the physician will wield it to try and get to the root of a problem and try and understand what they need to do to help the patient. The um, administrator will wield it to help drive everything forward and, and to keep that not just the revenue source, but make sure the right patients are in the right place and it's it's under a, a standard control. And if we took the technology away and let people sometimes just speak and communicate that way, then we'll find that we can, we can gain a common language. We can start to understand each other and we can start to use that and reinforce some of the, the methods and um, the processes that may end up in place. Yeah, so I think that's the key. Healthcare is information and relationships. Mm -hmm. And when people connect, when people connect, the diagnosis are better. And using this methodology, we may not cure every patient, but every patient will have whole person healing uh, for each and every one of them. And that concludes this episode of Transformative Healthcare, a limited edition 14-part podcast series. I've been your host, Todd Chobatar. To discover other great resources to help you feel whole in mind, body, and spirit, please visit us online at adventhealthpress.com. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter. It includes healthy living tips, leadership wisdom, and regular giveaways. Tune in for our next episode, where Jeffrey Kuhlman and Daniel Peach will be discussing baseball, chefs, and physician burnout. Thanks for joining us.